0: Good morning, Harbor City. Man, it's such a privilege to be back up here again, and really, it's a blessing. So um, I'm excited to be here. It's a little bit nerve-wracking as well, Um, but thank you, Aldous, for giving me the privilege to just uh, look at what God has to say on this topic, which we're going to look at today. Um, So on that note, I want to ask, how many of you have thought about anger and what it is? A little bit of a heavy topic, I know, but it's like, maybe, maybe, let me ask a second question. How many of you this morning got a little bit angry about something or frustrated or annoyed on your way to church? There you go. There you go. Okay. So, so it's everyone, right? We all battle from this thing from time to time. Um, So I want to tell a little story. Maybe just think about some of these moments where you felt anger flare up. And I'm going to tell you a story from my childhood. Um, So let me just stand out the way here. Rowan, if you'd put that first image of my brother up on the screen. So this is my brother, Andrew Oberholzer. He's about five years old. He's a very cheeky, naughty little boy at this age. What's that? Two years old. Oh, my goodness. Okay. So uh, story behind... (laughs) Problem with having your family in the audience. Um, (laughs) is um, Here he is very naughtily tucking into the cake before my mum's cut it for his birthday, um, and you can see he's quite thrilled with himself. Rowan, if you'd go to the next image quickly. Uh, here he is trying to be cool, um, and he's got his little midriff showing, and he re- I really just want to paint this picture of a mischievous young boy, and um, so Andrew, when he was younger, had a very interesting relationship with our pets, and we had a cat and a dog, <laughs> and um, he used to take our cat now. The pets are fine. I know this might sound a little bit like animal cruelty, but when he was really young, about five, if I'm correct, he would take our cat, Katie, and he would throw her into the little pond just so that he could watch her swim out and then kind of like shake herself off looking like a mop with legs. And he would laugh at this moment. And we were like, as a family, we need to do something. But part of me thinks like after repetition, the cat kind of enjoyed it. And um, (laughs) then... He, we had this Jack Russell called Scampy, which I don't unfortunately have a picture of. And Scampy was also this little, small, tiny, robust, cheeky, mischievous dog. Um, and with my brother being small, tiny, and mischievous and cheeky, they kind of had this love-hate relationship and played off each other's strengths and weaknesses. So um, there was a moment that I remember in particular, which I think interest, uh, which shows this relationship quite well. And my brother, what he used to do is he'd take his dressing gown cord and he'd tie it around his waist. It's like this little guy like this. And then he'd run up and down the house so that Scampy would chase this cord. And so he's shrieking with laughter, running up and down, the family's sitting on the couch and we're all laughing like having a good time until inevitably the dog would catch the cord. And then it became an issue of pride. And so Andrew would fight this dog off and we're all on the couch laughing, and then he would try and like keep us cool, and like in a little five-year-old voice, be as deep and as authoritative as he could. Scampy, scampy, and then inevitably they would end up fighting, and Scampy would like nip him or something, and the fight would break out as we knew it. My mom's crying with laughter because she knows exactly what I'm talking about, and um, my parents at some stage would always have to break up this fight. And often, while they were breaking it up, I would remember that they would swap the names around by mistake, as parents often do. So she'd be, <laughs> be like, "Scampy!" I mean, I mean, Andrew. I mean... And Andrew would now be absolutely livid because he's been called Scampy, um, <laughs> and Scampy is called Andrew. And um, at this point, often our siblings were like cheering for Scampy because uh, we thought that. Um, Andrew was in the wrong. And so Andrew would then storm off into the bedroom. And as a little five-year-old would do, and that would be the end of that. But the narrative of this story is I wanted to try and show how quickly and easily our egos can get bruised. Um, And I think it was funny, but if I look at myself, there are definitely moments where I've seen my own anger and ego flare up. And to the point where I would lose sleep at night over conversations that I've had with people. And it got me thinking, I was like, I'm so angry at this person. Surely what they've done deserves this fury right now. And, and I'm like, wait, wait a minute. Like, could my anger be righteous right now? Like, could it be that actually they do deserve this anger? And then I was thinking, well, what about God's anger? Like god 's anger is righteous, right? His wrath is righteous, but how do I be angry and then also love someone at the same time? So how does a loving God be wrathful in moments and so really that 's the question that I want to look at today is how does a loving God be wrathful in moments <clears throat> so i 'm going to ask i 'm going to attribute these two points to Nigel Richardson, if he does listen to this. Um, there are two things that we know about God's wrath. One, we like it, and two, we don't. And I want to ask us why. <laughs> because, one, why do we like God's wrath? Well, because we like justice. And when we see evil, we desire something to be done. When we see a wrong action, we want to see a right action happen and for justice to be the order of the day. Um, and often we see that anger in ourselves. We see that uh, desire for justice in ourselves, the same justice that we see in God. And secondly, why don't we like God's wrath? And I think this one's pretty obvious to answer because as a broken and sinful world where all humanity has fallen short of the glory of God, we are in rebellion with God by our default nature. And... Um, This is very politically incorrect. This is culturally incorrect. You know, that actually we stand in the firing line of God's wrath. And the thing is, we we like justice, but we like it on our own terms. We don't like justice on God's terms. Um, And so this is the tension that I'm I'm hoping that we can wrestle with a little bit today. Um, So with that in mind, can we turn to John 2, verses 13 to 22? Um, It should appear behind me. Should I move out the way? Am I like slapping in the way of the scripture? Okay. Um, Okay, so if you're there, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there, and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of that temple with the sheep and the oxen, And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Um, Do not make my father's house a house of trade. This is the ESV version, by the way. Um, His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews then said, it had taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Okay, so it's quite an gnarly text, huh? <laughs> and it's quite controversial as well. And um, I think generally the first thing when we look at that text, we think, Jesus made a whip. Like stuff is about to go down. (laughs) And um, so let's dig into the context of this a bit. Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem for the Passover. Um, which is essentially a ceremony which celebrates the Israelites being rescued out of Egypt by God. And so Jews all over the place from the east would come to Jerusalem to celebrate this and to perform animal sacrifices so that their sins can be cleansed at the temple in Jerusalem. Um, And one of the few things that we don't actually see in the Scripture is the sheer magnitude of what was going on on a practical surface, on like face value, sorry, there were, scholars say, tens if not hundreds of thousands of people who would descend upon Jerusalem over a one-week period and hundreds of thousands of animals, sheep, um, pigeons, sorry, doves, and goats, cows. And so really it's like there's a lot of mayhem going on here. Some people say that 255,000 lambs are slaughtered over this one-week period. And so, really, this is, it's a huge, huge event. Um, and it's important that we note that. So, it takes place for about a week. And as you can imagine, people traveling from afar don't really want to come with their animals. I mean, I don't know about you guys what your family childhood was like, but if we were going on holiday and there's three of us at the backseat kids, I mean, that was chaos enough. Now, we've each got to have a sheep. Um, that would be quite an interesting journey. So, the temple thought that they would sort of solve this problem and provide livestock on hand. So, Rowan, if you wouldn't mind just putting that picture up of the temple. As you can see here, it's a massive structure. And in the center, uh, that is where the Jews would go, and only they were allowed to go. But on those outer courts, um, were the gentiles courts where the Gentiles were allowed to come and perform their sacrifices and essentially like be exposed to God and accessing God and potentially be converted um, so we need to understand now <clears throat> why Jesus was so angry in this moment and what literally goes down and there are two main interpretations of this passage. Um, the first being that Jesus was a violent Jesus. That he has a whip that could potentially damage people. Um, Ro, can you go to the next uh, picture? That he has a whip that could potentially like damage people and that he was there to, to really cleanse the temple physically and, and persecute um, people in a sense, whipping animals and people alike out of zeal for God's holiness. And um, there's a man by the name of St. Augustine who really popularized this view after the 5th century. And he was saying, like, this is Jesus being radical. He actually is harming and causing pain to people, and he is chasing these people out of the temple in anger and fury. Um, And it was a radical moment. But that view then got extended and elaborated upon, and essentially was one of the founding scriptures for the Crusades, Uh, the First and the Second Crusades. And whether or not you know about that, but the Crusades essentially was European Christians coming down to Jerusalem and being protected through the coast of Palestine by armored knights. And these knights essentially at first were peacekeeping knights. But then orders got passed on that they were allowed to be violent and that they were allowed to kill people to cleanse out the temple, um, essentially justifying themselves with the scripture so it's a it's incredibly intense let me just get to my notes so this painting over here that you see is um a painting by rembrandt uh i don't know if i'm pronouncing his name correctly but it was in the year 1635 and you can see how like really this understanding of the scripture was the dominant one of like a violent jesus you can see that he's like hurting people and he's got a really harsh whip um and that really sort of seeped into culture, and a lot of culture was formed because of that. Um, if we look at some Christian movements, networks, governments that potentially justified violence or capital punishment, burning of her- heretics, people who preached a false gospel, this has all been justified by a false interpretation of the scripture. But there's an alternative view, and. Um, this view was actually a lot older than the previous one. It was originally interpreted by Greek scholars as a non-violent Jesus. And a lot of modern scholars and theologians have actually turned to this view because of the points that we're going to look at now. And you might ask me, like, okay, why, why does this really matter on whether he's violent or not violent? But it really has implications to our idea of what a righteous wrath looks like. Um, so, number one. Jesus did not whip or physically harm any human beings. And the reason for this is weapons weren't allowed in the temple by Jewish law and the Romans. So everyone would have been filtered in as they were in that space. And two, Jesus wouldn't have been able to go about whipping and harming people with hundreds of Roman soldiers around and Jewish people. He would have been overthrown immediately. Um, So what a lot of scholars have said is that the Greek was interpreted differently. And actually the Greek words say that this whip was made out of bulrushes and long reeds and stuff that he would have found in that area and was there logically to herd and chase cattle. So it made a loud sound in the air and it was like a thrashing and he would have hit cattle and stuff with it, but it actually couldn't harm animal and people. Um, So I think that's an important note to make. And then um, Tim Keller says, secondly, that this was actually a divine moment of God supernaturally revealing His being through His Son in this space. Because think about it. There are hundreds of thousands of people. How did Jesus get all of these guys to flee a space with just a whip? It doesn't make sense. Actually... It was his looks, it was his being, it was the fact that he's the Son of God and the creator of the universe, and he was revealing himself in a very key and prophetic moment of what cleansing the temple would look like. Um, so one man clears out hundreds and thousands of people and cattle. Second point. This was a very carefully planned moment. It was not an erratic moment of anger um, like we have in conversation or sometimes perhaps in traffic. It was thought out. It was very carefully planned. And you can imagine Jesus going in, kind of seeing everything, what's happening, thinking to himself, okay, this needs action. And then going and actually like making a weapon. He was a craftsman. I'm guessing it would have been some artistic prowess. But I, I believe that he spent time... And Sorry, not just me, but Scripture and a lot of other scholars as well, that he would spend time and he would have been meditating and praying and like, God, what are we doing here? And then, upon conviction, goes and implements rationally what needs to be done. This was not a flaring up of anger. It was well thought out. Um, And then... I think I missed a bit about the money changes. I definitely did. Um, Sorry, so we can just reverse a little bit what was going on. People are selling animals. Gentiles and Jews were only allowed to buy the animals in the Jewish temple's currency. So that's quite tricky. Because now you've got people coming in from all over the place with different currencies. And the temple now forces them to all buy the animals with their currency. Which means everyone has to exchange their currency at the temple's rate of conversion. So, like there's like a whole lot of forex stores all around the temple, and the temple holds the monopoly because they decide what this exchange rate is going to look like. It's kind of like the um, oil being sold in U.S. dollars, to put it in a modern context. Um, So, with that in mind, Jesus goes and he like overthrows those tables. He like throws the money away, but he doesn't do that with the doves. Actually, what he does to the sellers with the doves is he just speaks to them He's like you need to leave this place. So we don't see him like actually harming, you know, those animals. So in a moment Jesus really knows how to be authoritative and meek and humble at the same time. It's a very interesting combination um, of this moment. Are we all good? people understanding? That's good. Great. Um, So Jesus was... Now the third point... Oh, I nearly gave it away. Um, The third point, and it's probably the most important point, is that Jesus was cleansing the temple so that we could be closer to God. And that essentially is what made Jesus angry in this moment. That is what brought out this righteous wrath. Um, And if we look at Jesus' primary mission on earth is to reconcile humanity to God, vertical, and humanity with each other, man to man. So there's a, there's a vertical reconciliation and a horizontal reconciliation. And this event, the one place where, if you can go back to that uh, temple picture, Ron, the one place where Gentiles could actually have access to God was now being completely distorted with greed, and they were disconnected from the potential of having a relationship with God the Father. And so this infuriated Christ because that was his sole mandate was to bring reconciliation and that reconciliation was being destroyed. Um, 2 Corinthians 5 verses 8 says this. 5 verses 18, sorry. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And really we see here the scripture saying that this is what Jesus' primary mandate was to reconcile man to God. And in this moment, people are almost making a mockery. Like the temple had completely forgotten what the purpose of these sacrifices were and how sacred the moment was. And in a sense, I'm going to say like making a mockery of God's grace. Um, And so this was a prophetic moment where Jesus was going to clear the temple um, that was going to point later on to something. So the new temple, he says, I don't know if you remember in the scripture, he says that um, if you destroyed this temple, I will raise it up in three days. And it will be a new temple. And really, he's speaking about himself there. He's saying, I'm going to provide a new way of access to God. And that's the new temple that he's talking about. This is what this picture is being prophetic to. Um, So let's quickly try to summarize a little bit. What isn't God's wrath? There are a lot of misconceptions. Some people think, when you think of God, you think, ah, this is a God of love and a God of wrath. Like these two different things. Um, No, it is not that. God is not a God of wrath and love. His nature is love. God is a God of love. And a consequence of our rebellion term is sin. I mean, is is wrath. Sorry, I want to get this right. Like, God is a God of love, and um, a consequence of that radical and holy love is wrath. If that makes sense. Um. Don Carson puts it this way, well he first points out that you know a lot of people think God is a God of wrath in the Old Testament and then a God of love in the New Testament, but actually, we have these two themes of love and wrath and barreling throughout scripture, starting from the you know starting from the start and ending at the end, but becoming clearer and clearer, and we get to understand them more and more what is god 's love what is god 's wrath, how do they fit together um, and So then I want to say, or I want to ask, what is God's wrath? First of all, it is a response to our sin and a rebellion, which is a rebellion against him. Um, I've definitely just said this. Sorry, I'm going to skip to the illustration. Um, Maybe to help understand this a little bit more. If we took a mother who had her child kidnapped, to understand her anger in that moment, because she would be furious we need to first understand her love for the child. And that mother will do anything to get her child back to her. And I want to rephrase that. That That mother will do anything to restore her relationship with her child. Um, So to understand God's wrath, we must understand His love and that He will do anything to get you back to Him, to restore your relationship with Him. And where better a place do we see that than on the cross. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And um, this is an incredible loving act where God quenches his own wrath. Jesus stands in the place of where we deserve to be and God himself actually consumes his own wrath in place of us. That is God's justice. And um, this, is, this is a spectacular moment because we see God's wrath and his love acting in unison together. Um, and when Jesus before the cross cries out and there's that moment we all know where he's like sweating blood and he's really stressed. He's not stressed about the Romans killing him or hanging on the cross. He's stressed because he has to take on the wrath of God, that he has to deal with the sin of mankind and that's what causes him to sweat blood. And and that wrath looks like, you know, Romans tearing him apart and him being crushed and mutilated and being put on a cross to die for the things that we have done in our sin and our rebellion. So on one hand, on the cross, we see the incredible wrath of God. But on the other hand, we see the incredible love that he would go to that extent to save humanity, to restore um, our relationship with him, and to reconcile and that is beautiful. That is something worth celebrating. That is a costly grace that is incredible. And I think there's so many times that we can look at that picture and we can see, OK, this is God's love. It is massive. It is, you know, uh, wider and bigger than we can understand, and it surpasses knowledge. <clears throat> so as I start to close, um, I want to highlight a, a couple of points quickly. First, God did frequently move in anger. And anger can be a means of bringing the Christian into action quickly. Um, God was angry at the temple and he moved. He was convicted and, sorry, maybe not convicted, but he moved into action. But a righteous anger's motivation seeks righteousness. It's for righteousness. It's not self. It's selfless. Um, <clears throat> and is constructive to the kingdom of God. So a righteous anger does not hate man. A righteous anger can hate what man does. And a righteous anger is not prejudice to man, but it is prejudice to sin and to the destruction that that brings. Um, prejudice towards systems of oppression that divide and separate humanity. But it is not vengeance. <laughs> vengeance is God's alone because God is the judge. Um, so really, Jesus' life was in protest to old ways and to sin and to people not being reconciled to God, um, but He never caused people any physical harm. In fact, His dying words on the cross was, "Lord, forgive them, for they know not what they do." I think it's an incredible image of the Lion and the Lamb, of like His authority in moments and His uh, confidence in moments, but then also His humility and His meekness as He is sacrificed. For humanity. Um, so I think as we look at this application on what a righteous anger could look like or a, a God, a loving God who is wrathful, what does that mean for a South African context? Like we have a complex situation and there are a lot of different contexts right now in this room. There's different people groups, we have different histories, understanding and experience of, of anger um, So how does Christ's loving wrath implicate us and how we go about our lives? So how does um, Christ's loving wrath implicate a lawyer who needs to defend a specific cause? How does that lawyer treat their client? And at the same time, how does that lawyer treat the opposition? Or how does a um, doctor now treat his Patient and also deal with the incredibly slow systems of administration. Um, How does this affect the way that we protest against oppression or corruption? How did Jesus protest? See, because in moments he was a lion, in moments he was a lamb, but there was humility and there was um, confidence in his anger. And importantly, when he died on the cross, he died for everyone. (laughs) He, he, the cross literally flattens the playing field. It says, you know, the oppressor, the oppressed, everyone, we're all guilty um, when it comes to the cross. And Jesus died for the Roman, Jew, Gentile alike to be fully reconciled to their father. So I would like to end with us asking two questions about perhaps our anger. A, what are you angry about? But importantly, what are we not angry about? Because um, as a loving people, as Christians, there should be things that make us angry. Um, But in each case, we need to question the motivations behind that anger, because our motivation behind the anger will dictate our actions. Um, Is that okay? So, is your anger a personal offense, a bruised ego? Maybe you think that you should be treated differently. Like, how dare this person respect me or disrespect me in this way? Because if we look at the cross, the cross says that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And all of us have sinned. All of us are are in um, rebellion against God and deserving death. Or is the motivation of your anger the brokenness of sin that has brought people made in the image of God to be separated and treated in a way that does not glorify their maker because you can't see the reconciliation between God and man and man and man alike. Because I think if we look at the cross, Jesus died for reconciliation between God and man and man and man. And if we're not seeing that reconciliation, then we should be angry. Um, But as with Jesus on the cross, it should all come out of a place of radical love Radical love for your neighbor. um, And that should motivate us. And that's what should separate the Christian apart. Cool. Um, Can I pray for us quickly as we end? Uh, Can you guys stand, please? Hmm. Dear Lord, I thank you so much for your example of love. I thank you so much for what you did on the cross and how you have um, been an example of us to live our lives, Lord, um, in moments where we are confident and authoritative and other times humble and meek. Lord, won't you convict us um, where we have been wrong in our anger sometimes, Lord? And also, won't you convict us when we haven't done things, my Lord? Um, We thank you so much for who you are, for the life that you've lived